once the founder has set the vision for what the protocol or what the, web, uh, the Perma Web App is, it simply cannot be changed. And so there is no possibility that, that you can get this sort of slow corruption of the ideal over time um, that, that has characterized the Web 2 era. And that, that I think is just unbelievably exciting. Like maybe it was a necessary evolution, right? Yeah. Do you think we could have gotten here without all that? Well, you're really hitting at the, uh, yeah, the key philosophical underpinnings of the thing. You're tuned to the RCast, where we talk about the blockchain on the RCast. And how your data remains it's the R-Cast. Where R-Drive is the topic, censorship-resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Welcome to the second episode of the R-Cast. And we have been blown away by the response to the first episode with Professor Mark Lemley. Uh, the response has been awesome. Thank you for all your tweets, for all your comments. Thank you for sharing. This podcast is now part of the Permacast. Shout out to Arweave News, and we want to shout out the R-Drive knowledge base, everything you need to know about R-Drive. For all your educational needs, go to rdrive.io slash learn and click on explore knowledge base in the bottom right-hand corner. So we've got some other exciting news. We hit 2,000 followers on Twitter. Woo! We're on Instagram, R-Drive app. We're on Facebook, R-Drive apps, and check us out on YouTube and just spread the word. So that's what's up. So before we get into this exciting interview, we want to shout out our bounty winner, CHSSS3, Chess3 on Twitter. Their drive was a delicious trip around the food of China. And uh, our theme for November was food. So they want some AR. Shout out to all the supporters. Thank you for participating. Our next bounty starts on December 1st. So stay tuned for information about that. Thanks to Akash for hosting the Permaweb Hackathon with Arweave. That was super exciting. And with the holidays coming up, don't stray too far from our socials because we have a special gift. You know, a lot of things might change over the holidays. Things get fungible, wink, wink. But we're not going to talk about that. No fungible talk. NFT today. Hey. <laughs> All right. So th- this is my interview with Sam Williams, who really needs no introduction. But uh, here we go. Episode two of the Rcast. All right, friends, welcome to episode two of the Rcast. And we couldn't have a more appropriate, wonderful guest. This is a man who I met IRL at the Arweave meetup in New York a few <laughs> weeks ago. And uh, it's great to have him on the show. So welcome, Sam Williams, to the Rcast. Thank you so much for having me. I thought today it'd be kind of interesting to talk about some of the philosophy behind this project, talk about your own journey. So but some background on me, I got my start in the music business. I was um, doing some, I was doing my Shakespeare studies for undergrad at Oxford, and I started rapping about Shakespeare when I was in huh. 2003, and there was a label that signed me, and it was this interesting result of building this community of people who were definitely outside of the mainstream, you know, major label world, but building this community where the equity was in the culture itself, in making the friendships, building this DIY network. And as I learned more about Web 2 and the transference to Web 3, where it's about building a decentralized culture. And I think there's some connections here. And there's something like about British people, specifically in European people that I felt... <laughs> made that work. Do you think your being a, being from Germany and studying in England has given you sort of a the right perspective to do this, to be the man to launch this project? <laughs> it's an interesting question. I wouldn't say so. I, I, I would say that nowadays I, I find myself sort of culturally detached from every country that I've 
you know, spend much time in. So I grew up in the UK and then I, I spent three or four years in Germany. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the, in the US along the way. Um, and nowadays I find myself in this weird detached state where like uh, I can see the cultures around me, but I, I don't really feel attached to any of them particularly. Um, yeah. Which is, which is definitely interesting, but, but also when I started out, it really wasn't that way. It was, it was very much part of the British culture, I suppose. And um, actually, no, to be honest, I've, I've always been more attached to the culture of the internet than I would say any nation state. And, and that truly was the reason that, or, you know, part of the theme in, in my life, I suppose, that, that led to the inception of the, the Arweave project. It seemed that the values of the internet were, were under threat and, and we're eroding, and it was time for a technological solution to the problem, I suppose you could say. And it's interesting, Sam, because I know some of the ideological origins for the Arweave project are surrounding Orwell and 1984, and how <laughs> right. he yeah. was, like, during the Spanish Civil War, when he felt like there was this authoritarian regime that was replacing the old ways, indeed, you know, in a way that was like, oh, we're going to make everything better. But in fact, it wasn't. And so it was like a satirical take on right. that. So did you see a similar thing happening with the internet you grew up with? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question. I've never <laughs> thought about it from that point of view. I didn't believe, I suppose, the arguments that were put forward for vast censorship of the internet were really going to achieve the ends that the people putting them forward believed that they would, or at least said that they believed that they, they would. Um, it seemed to me pretty obvious that the thing that is great about the internet is that nobody gets to tell uh, anyone else definitively what the truth is. We, we allow people to make up their own minds. And we were moving towards a situation um, more reminiscent of the pre-internet world where consensus truth was, would you say, projected from above upon the populace rather than uh, emerging from the grassroots, if that makes sense. And, and it yeah. just intuitively felt to me that this was obviously obviously not going to work and that the the power of the internet is in that ability for people to come to more or less decentralized consensus about what the truth is um <laughs> yeah and it it just seemed obvious that the situation was not going to end well i suppose so i guess sam like talking to you and like and watching your interviews it seems like you're an optimist yeah about what this project could do <laughs> do you think you are I, I i would say i am very optimistic about what the are ecosystem is capable of doing and and Frankly, every day I'm surprised and amazed and excited by what people are building on top of it. Um, I would say that actually the production of Arweave came from a, a more pessimistic uh, viewpoint in some sense. Like we were looking at the, the development of, or would you say the tendency in which society was moving at the time, and I think unfortunately largely still is in the West, and we wanted and we were afraid that, that what might happen is the development of seriously authoritarian states in the West. And so we wanted to put a blocker in the way, if you will, something that can't be removed, that it would at least, at least slow down, if not halt the development of such a, such a situation. And it wasn't you know, fast, fantastically optimistic that, that, that it would solve the problem entirely. Mm -hmm. um, but we wanted to at least make it so that, you know, Full information control would never be possible in the West by a, a centralized party. You could never take away the right of free speech from people. Um, and I, so to some extent, it was, it was motivated more by a defense of the rights that we, 
largely currently have more than an optimistic uh, view of, you know, that this might be able to uh, solve problems in places where perhaps this stuff already exists. Like I, I never believed that that we would be able to turn back the tide in a place like North Korea. Like unfortunately, that just isn't realistic. What we can at least do is make sure that we're keeping an accurate and an incorruptible record of history uh, that is available everywhere else in what you could call the free world. And, and at least that does something to try and address the problem. Yeah. So, so that was the sort of core motivation. Um, I think since then, to be honest, and, and when, when we got started, you know, the, the project seemed almost impossible. Like building a, a web is, <laughs> you know, it's like a laughably outlandish proposition, almost. And yet where we are now, like five years later in the ecosystem that has built up around the, the project, it's, it feels like a, a question of when, not if at this point. And, and that's something that I'm just immensely grateful for. Like it's really, it's really astounding to see where the community has, has gone during that period. And the last like 20 years of life on this planet has shown that even when people have good intentions, if you have kind of a, a capitalist driven element or a venture capitalist having to make back their investment, if that is what pushes progress, you're not able to make things like you've said, sustainable, open, transparent, and fair, right? So, so that's a really interesting point. You know, we're almost at the, at the position where we can start kind of retrospectively looking at the history of the Web2 era and making some sort of uh, conclusions. And, and I think one of those conclusions has to be something like the startup culture of Web2 was dominated by um, hyper-optimism and idealism, which over time was met by a hard reality that the incentive structures in which these new products were being produced was not in the favor of the users. So, so you know, it, the story that played out like dozens and dozens of times, if not hundreds of thousands of times during that period was essentially that optimistic founders would, would get together and they would excitedly build a new product and they would want to change the world for the better. Um, and they would go about, you know, largely doing that, like building products that did make the world better. Um, but over time, and, and typically through the process of governance of the companies of the, that produce these products, the, I, the initial vision became corrupted. So, you know, of course, everybody knows that the, <laughs> the founding principle of, uh, of Google was essentially, uh, oh, how did they phrase it precisely? It was essentially, do no evil. Uh, don't be mm. evil is how they phrased it. it you know, they, they truly believed that that was what they wanted to, you know, head out and do. And, and Facebook, too, wanted to connect people. That, these are like good, idealistic visions of the future. Um, but the problem is that over time, you know, naturally they, they sold parts of the company and they also sold control of the company as they progressed. And through through no fault of any of the people involved in the situation, but through a sort of natural consequence of the incentive structure that, that was um, in which the tech culture found itself, you naturally get this slow erosion of the ideals and the replacement with hard, 
profit motive. And, and what makes me so excited about the, the crypto space and, and more specifically about PermaWeb applications is that they're a kind of incorruptible product in a form. They, they, are, they are a... Uh, once the founder has set the vision for what the protocol or what the, web, uh, the PermaWeb app is, it simply cannot be changed. And so there is no possibility that, that you can get this sort of slow corruption of the ideal over time um, that, that has characterized the Web2 era. And that, that, I think, is just unbelievably exciting. Like, maybe it was a necessary evolution, right? Yeah. Do you think we could have gotten here without all that? Well, you're really hitting at the, uh, yeah, the key philosophical underpinnings of the thing. Um, okay, so, so I think that in the early days of the internet, the protocols were all produced in an open and free fashion. And those protocols themselves were incorruptible. HTTP remains non-corrupted from its original vision and version as it was in, it was in 1991, 1992, when Tim Berners-Lee you know, first put like, fingers to keyboard and, and came up with the first version. So protocols have always had this ability to not... Uh, to, to, um, resist corruption in the early and and indeed that was the basic way that things were produced in the early days of the internet you know irc tcp um udp http like all of the the fundamental stuff that runs the internet were was protocols is protocols um the problem was that those protocols produced unbelievable amounts of value and captured mm. none of it like zero for its mm. creators and, and, you know, we, we live in a world where people are motivated by incentives. So somewhere along the line, um, the focus shifted to companies that were able to, to capture some of the value that they were creating. Um, but as a, and I, I believe this was a, an unintended consequence, was that they also captured a massive amount of power. And the problem is, once you've got power, you, doing nothing is still using it. Like, there's, once right. you have power, there's, there's nothing you can do which isn't, isn't making use of it. Um, right. and, and then, of course, at the same time, they, they amassed that power in these corporations, which the founders were slowly selling. And, you know, how else would they realize that value, right? Um, and sure enough, at some point, you, you just lose control over the thing. And now... Google of today is very different from Google of the start. And I'm reminded of, you know, Jack at Twitter once tweeted, Twitter is the free speech wing of the free speech party. <laughs> and if you compare that to where they are today, it's just like, ah, oh, come on, this is, it's not the same thing. And I, and I think that, um, right. I don't think that they wanted to capture that power. And I actually think that the fact that you see some of these founders that were, you know, the prime players in the Web2 space, now embracing and being so excited about uh, Web3 alternatives shows that underlying what has happened, there is still an ideological desire to have what I would call like the, the, the initial culture of the, the internet, uh, where it's sort of a, a free expression and communication of ideas, um, a free association of people in communities, you know, and so on. These, the spirit of openness, if you were to put it in a single phrase, um, persist and, and prevail. And I think what, what happened in the crypto space and what makes me sort of one of the reasons I kind of intrinsically conclude that eventually we will end up replacing all 
or most company-like structures on the web is that the natural tendency of the web was towards protocols. We moved away from it because we couldn't capture values in, in value in protocols. And now, after the birth of Bitcoin, we know how to build protocols that do capture value. And I, I would say that the PermaWeb app is really kind of protocolization of a web application. And so, yeah, in, in that sense, I see it as is the sort of natural next step and both a moving forward in a way. So, but also kind of like a like a rekindling of something that you could say died unnecessarily just because of the lack of technological progress at the time back in the early nineties. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and I remember I, when I read Snowden's book, Permanent Record, he talks about mm -hmm. how, have you read it? Yes, yes, it's a very interesting book. It's interesting how he talks about the early years of the internet and the fun part of being anonymous and being not monitored and how his desire to, to share what he learned was kind of a desire to similarly go backwards and and bring back like his the kind of the quote unquote magic of the early years of the internet. And it sounds like from the Arweave community, one of the things that people love about it is that blockchain is so profit driven. And you were talking when we were talking at the Arweave meetup about how like it's become like a casino. It's like Vegas to some people. You know, it's like it's it's got that element of it. But if you can try to do good with it or try to do something functional, that makes the whole project stand out. I don't think it has to be a casino. And I think even in the more casino-like areas of it, under, underneath the rampant speculation, there, there is often a technological core, which is extremely powerful and will likely show itself to be very valuable in a, in a sort of pro-social fashion, not zero-sum uh, speculative fashion over, over a number of years. Um, I do, however, see that, you know, a number of the major applications on on the smart contract systems so far have sort of become like programmable casinos would be one way of thinking about it um right yeah <laughs> but but the the central technology that 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 defines blockchains is is a technology surrounding trust and so one of the use cases of that is of course in the financial industry where the cost of trust is extremely expensive um a, a second use, I think, is around information. And that, of mm. course, is where the Arweave community is, is uh, focused. So I would say that, yeah, you could argue that the, the central thing that Arweave does is change the relationship between people and information. Make it so that there is information that is trustlessly available forever. Uh, yeah, and... and to, to go back to what you're saying about the, the culture of the early internet, I, I, I definitely feel like there's, um, that there's a lot of that re-emerging inside the Aweave ecosystem. And that's, that's super fun to watch. I remember even in the, the, one of the second or third applications ever built on top of Aweave was this thing called Hot Dog Rhythm Station by Ross McManon. <laughs> and, it, and it was just this fun little application that, that uh, you know, it was like a... Um, I'm not sure what you call them, like a kind of simple drum sequencer. Um, you could load in samples and stuff. You could save it to the, the PermaWeb and then you know, load people's and, and fork it and, and resave it and so on. Um, but, but it just had that kind of spirit of fun, you know? And, and I think the same has permeated through a lot of the ecosystem as it's developed. I, I hope we can um, hold on to that as we go forward. Yeah, me too. I like how you put that. And I think the interesting thing 
like about web two is that the value comes from the attention that people give mm. give to media and content, right? So like the venture capitalists trade on the idea that you'll get so many eyeballs, so many minutes, and the data and the content is infinite. It, the, the way they try to serve it and add different permutations of it to get the algorithms knowing people are paying attention. But something that's so exciting about are we even in working with our drive is when I'm when I use the application, I store things on I store things on the weave that I care about, like small files that are particularly interesting that makes it so the value is not from the infinite media. It's from my connection to specific special pieces of data that I care about. And that takes me back to being like 11, 11 years old and having like a, a tiny three and a half inch floppy with like my poetry or something <laughs> like that. Like this, yeah. that less is more, you know, when you have to be thoughtful. Have hmm. you ever thought of it like that? Like the, the whole minimalist thing where you use it in a more thoughtful way than you would if you weren't saving everything permanently. Yeah, well, I, I think it it's a tool that demands one's attention while making use of it. You know, there is no undo button, right? So, right. so you really have to treat it with some... <laughs> it's my, my own creation to it, at least some extent, so I don't want to big up its ego too much, but <laughs> you got to treat it with some kind of respect, right? Like, <laughs> um, it, it, is not a, it is not a toy, in a way. Um, so yeah, I, I think when I, when I use it, I, I pay much more attention to what I'm doing. And, and this is something that we spend a lot of time in the early days trying to work out how users aren't really used to stuff that truly cannot be undone in the in cyberspace there's always an undo button there's always a delete button um and we we spend a lot of time trying to work out how we can um would you say impress upon the users uh the the seriousness of what they're doing the fact that they cannot revoke it in the future they are changing the power relationship not just between other people and the data that they're committing to the network, but themselves and the data that they're committing to the network. They're making it trustlessly available for all people for all time. Um, yeah, so, so our early experiments involve stuff like uh, you had to type confirm in big capital letters before you, mm. before you committed something to the network. I, I still think there's a conversation to be had in the ecosystem about how we can set up you know, user experience best practices uh, so that we can yeah, have, have a, a good set of tools to use to ex express to the user the seriousness of what they're doing while they're doing it without hopefully getting, getting in the way of the user flow too much. Um, there's a fine balance to be struck there. There's, I, I just did a video um, f for our drive and I worked, and Phil, you know, gave, gave us some ideas. And one of his ideas was to make a folder that says trash and you stuff that you don't want to have there, you put into the quote unquote permatrash, which is kind of like a permatrash. It's like it's like a workaround, right? It's like I thought that was a, a clever way of using the RFS system in a way that feels like people are used to with files and making it more useful. But also, you know, those files are always there. Like having to be flexible with the application and with the weave, right? And like using it in a way you used to use it, but knowing that you have to approach it differently. Like if you have anything incriminating or anything you don't want people to know, don't put that in a public permatrash because people will find it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, don't don't <laughs> use the weave for any, 
anything criminal, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really yeah. terrible system for that. It makes a permanent log of everything you're doing. Don't, it's not a good idea. But yeah, the idea of a permatrash is interesting. I wonder whether a more appropriate thing to do is, and this is a kind of community decision, I suppose, to simply hide it. So it's just gone from the UI. Obviously, it's still on the network, but, but you can't see it anymore. I think this is a pattern that, that people are tending towards. So that way, you know, the, the, the person, what do you say, the, the accessor's right to reaccess a piece of information that they've seen before are preserved. But also you get some sort of, um, I was going to say, kind of forgiving nature of the system a little bit. Like, it, like you know, it, it bends a little bit to people's, um, to people's whims, but not, <laughs> not too much, if that makes sense. Like kind of middle ground, I suppose. And not sacrificing the integrity of, of the whole... Right, it doesn't, yeah. right. It doesn't sacrifice the integrity of the system, but it does allow you to correct a mistake, like a spelling mistake or something like that. You know, I, I remember back in, the, uh, back in the really early days of the PermaWeb, I think within the first year of launch, um, I made this, this application. Um, I think it's called Message in a Bottle or something. I was going to say it's probably still around, but of course it's still around. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but but it it had a spelling mistake, if I'm not mistaken, on the first deployed version, and and there was this weird moment where I was looking at the screen, and I was like, ah, that is something I'm never going to be able to take back. It's permanently attached to my my identity. <laughs> um, interesting. We're going to have to we're going to have to sort of, I guess you could say, be become more forgiving of each other's mistakes because. Mm. And, and that, that's something that we, we're already having to do in the digital uh, age. Like it's very clear that we produce more logs of our activity uh, than we used to in the you know, 70s or 80s and before. Yeah, and so, so I think there's, there's an interesting long-term philosophical conversation that will have, have to be had around you know, how, we, how we approach each other's uh, prior, whether it be spelling mistakes or otherwise. Less than representational <laughs> right. human behavior. Yeah. Um, Right. Uh, this is something that maybe I don't know if people have asked you this in interviews and stuff, but I'm wondering, being someone who has made um, made such a wave in in the blockchain world and and has this notoriety within this community and in this sphere, is it hard for you to decipher like what are real friendships versus what are people who are hmm. trying to like be close to for what they can do to gain? get their own game how do you deal with that <laughs> no one has asked me that before and that is an interesting question <laughs> uh, i would say to be honest I, I i don't think i have that much notoriety or or, or prominence so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it hasn't really been a problem i wouldn't say you know to some extent it, it, it feels like the inverse is almost true like from almost all the time we've been building our we it's been an <laughs> an uphill battle to to get people to sort of see what it is we're working on and why and how and how the system works and so on. So if anything, we were sort of like uh, at the edge of the... Yeah, I, I still mm. think we kind of... Because of the reason that you described earlier that, that Arweave is something pretty different than the rest of the crypto space, it's really not focused on finances at all. I don't know. That just hasn't been something that's been at the core of the experience. I'm actually just mostly very thankful to my, to my friends that I have had over the years for... Um, yeah, for, for supporting me and also the project and, and each other, because a lot of them were involved in it, um, through 
<laughs> through through the growth period. And now it seems like we're at this position where, where there is a bit more prominence of the project. People start to understand uh, why it's significant and, and what it allows people to do and the capabilities and so on. Um, but along the way, I, I, can't, I can't say that that I felt that so much. <laughs> so you don't have that sort of like celebrity paranoia <laughs> that some other people <laughs> might have. <laughs> Uh, it at least hasn't been. I would say I'm simply not a celebrity, so that's <laughs> that's helpful. And and, and yeah, the, the reverse was true. Like now I think about it, you know, I, I'm immensely grateful to to my friends who at the beginning took this massive bet to to quit their jobs and start working on this. What was at the time, as I described, you know, in the beginning, completely crazy idea to go out and build a new web. Like Kyle, India, Will, Damon, those, those people, I'm immensely grateful to. Um, they they really helped us get out of the gate in in a way that uh, took a lot of trust and inverse celebrity. It was really like yeah. quit your nice job doing cool things elsewhere where you like got a prominent position, blah blah blah, uh, to, to come work on this like you know garage project to build a new web it was completely absurd. But they did it, and and I'm very thankful. Genuine passion and curiosity is is contagious, and it, it's like what I think makes great things happen in the tech. <laughs> the tech world, even though that might seem kind of like a cliche thing, like if you generally care about something, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I was glad to come work with our drive is because Phil is such a passionate visionary and he's, right. he cares about it. And yeah. how do you feel that our drive can help with your vision for where you're hoping our weave will go? I mean, for a start, I would just to, to link this question to the last one, I would, I would put Phil amongst the, um, the early believers in which I am truly very, very thankful. Um, because, you know, Phil, Phil started mining our weave in the test net days, if I'm not mistaken, and has stuck with us through, through, uh, through thick and thin in, in, in the intervening period. And then, you know, was it just 15 or 16 months ago, he quit his job at a very, very reputable firm. I don't know if it's public, what, what it is, so I, I won't mention it, but a really reputable firm and a, and a, an incredible position to <laughs> to come and build one of the first major Pomweb apps, and and that was an incredible leap of faith for which I'm, you know, I'm truly very very thankful, uh, thankful that he took. And now I think it's working out in an incredible way because our drive is is just one of the most important applications in the ecosystem because it's the, <laughs> you know, well, obviously one of the one of the main questions I get asked is like, hey, how do I get data onto the thing? Right. And to most people, they're not used to dealing with protocols. They're used to dealing with products, right? So the answer is, well, I use the product. But with the protocol, it's a bit different. Um, and my answer is always, you know, go use our drive. It's a great user interface. And it's a great way to onboard new users to, to the world of the perm web. And, and I love the way that Phil approaches this, which is really just to, and, and the, the whole of the R drive team, actually, um, to to make it as simple as possible, to really cut down the barriers, make it to some extent like as uncrypto-y, I'm doing like uh, scare quotes, but unfortunately you can't see. Um, yeah, uncrypto-y as possible while maintaining all of the upsides of the, the technology. So not, not sacrificing, for example, user identity, ownership over user identity. Um, and indeed, I, I'm, I'm very, very thankful to you and, and the rest of the communications team at R-Drive who are doing a, a fantastic job at, um, at getting the word out about how the system works. I think you are essentially at this point the uh, the ecosystem's number one rapper. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for Thanks, the work Sam. you do to spread the word on it, too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And um, I appreciate your time. And it's something that I, 
I'm very passionate about and excited about and using, you know, using web two and using the, the old, the old way people get information to tell them about this new way of sharing and celebrating information and staying free in a way that like, hopefully the future generations will understand that truth does exist and a permanent record will tell our story and, and people will look back and say, wow, this was a interesting moment in the blockchain history. So Sam, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really, really great interview and I appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I think, uh, TLDR is we and the rest or me and the rest of the Alweave team greatly appreciate all of the all of the work everyone's put into this to get us this far. You know, there's something funny about okay, I mentioned before, you know, not a <laughs> definitely in my own eyes, certainly not a celebrity, but there is something just really like uh frankly kind of rewarding about about the fact that we're here on on an Rcast set up by someone else. That's just an amazing amazing um yeah, moment in the in the journey we're on. This is really cool. So thank you so much for setting this up and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Sam, for your time. Follow him on Twitter because he is very active and very supportive. Sam E.C. Williams. And remember, it's best to know before you stow your data forever. Mic drop. <laughs>